True or false, the Bible is filled with stories of picture-perfect families and ideal marriages, textbook parenting, and completely obedient children. Answer, <laughs> not even close to true. The truth is, dysfunctional families go all the way back to the Old Testament, all the way back to the very first family. Cain kills Abel. This week on The Land and the Book, we're going to encounter some of those dysfunctional families. But better than an episode of Dr. Phil, you'll walk away with wisdom for your family. Something a bit different coming up. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and Charlie, I'm guessing your recent trip to Israel has charged your batteries. Oh, John, it did. I, you know, that's like saying, sick him to a dog, as I say. Uh, coming to Israel uh, just gives me a new perspective. Well, having just traveled through Israel with your first full group in almost two years, what are your initial impressions? I mean, how accessible was everything? How, how safe did you feel it was for you and the group? Well, you know, things are getting back to normal, but uh, there are some COVID-related differences. Uh, the most difficult part of the trip for this group, uh, it was the need to get all the booster shots, you know, for the COVID vaccine. Uh, the policy you know, that they finally rolled out uh, here in the U.S. Uh, was okay, but uh, the group had to do all that submission before that policy was in place. Uh, none of them fit the criteria for the, you know, being immunocompromised. They, they had to search out to find doctors and pharmacists willing to provide the third dose. Uh, thankfully, everyone was able to do that. And then they had to find a testing site that would administer that PCR test within 72 hours of their flight. Mine, interestingly enough, Kathy's came back. Mine, they made a mistake. So within six hours of the flight, I was out searching for a one-hour PCR test. Hmm. Uh, just a little glitches along the way. But, you know, apart from those hassles and, of course, being required to wear a mask for all the time we're flying and while we're indoors in Israel... Apart from that, it really went well. Uh, tourism is still just getting restarted, so we never felt crowded at any of the sites. Uh, the employees, the shopkeepers, even total strangers would come up to us and, and literally roll out the red carpet to welcome us, to mm. thank us for coming. Israel did use the lockdown to make some improvements at, at sites. You know, for example, the entrance to Qumran has been totally changed and modernized. And this might sound minor, but even some of the restroom facilities, like those at Tel Dan, were greatly upgraded. Hmm. Now, in terms of safety, John, we did feel quite safe. We were warmly welcomed back by both Jewish and Arab shopkeepers. Uh, they might struggle with each other politically and religiously, but they're happy to see us back. We also felt safe in terms of the pandemic. The hotels and restaurants instituted a fairly high standard of cleanliness, and we toured as a group in a sort of protective bubble, uh, knowing everyone in the group had been vaccinated and, and then tested you know, twice before even starting the trip. Now, even details like installing a, a special filtration system on the bus to remove bacteria and viruses added to that special sense of protection. Well, since the fall of Afghanistan, terrorism in the Middle East has largely been off the media's radar screen. Does this mean terrorism is on the decline or are things happening that we're just maybe not hearing about? Yeah, it happens to be a case where no news isn't the same as good news. Uh, in Afghanistan, the new government appears to be doubling down on its efforts to reimpose a strict interpretation of Sharia law on the people. Uh, they're rolling back many of the reforms of the past 20 years. Uh, a former intelligence agent who briefed uh, Presidents Bush and Obama on the region publicly stated he has no doubt the Taliban will give safe haven to al-Qaeda. They don't like ISIS, but they do like al-Qaeda. And he believes al-Qaeda intends to rebuild its capacity so they can again launch attacks against the U.S. Now, if the U.S. lifts sanctions against Iran, 
Look for them to pour additional funds into groups like Hezbollah, uh, the Houthis in Yemen, and Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza. Now, as a result, those groups could even become more active. Libya, you know, we've talked about that a, a while, but it's been fairly quiet for the past six months. That might be about to end. Uh, they have a UN-sponsored interim government, and it's trying to prepare for elections at the end of December to hopefully reunite the country. But they're currently facing a crisis. Khalifa Haftar, the military leader in the eastern half of the country, he announced his intention to step away from his military position and run in the presidential election. A law was passed by the parliament allowing officials like Haftar to do that. However, the High Council of State rejected that legislation. The parliament then declared a vote of no confidence in the current unity government. Hmm. But the High Council of State rejected a no confidence vote. So with only two months until elections, the situation in Libya could easily descend back into civil war and chaos. And that could allow Libya to again become a fertile breeding ground for groups, well, like ISIS. In fact, speaking of ISIS, let me end with a little bit of good news. In September, a senior ISIS official in the Sinai surrendered to Egypt and provided information on the current situation among ISIS members there. He said there the group was struggling with low morale because of a lack of funds and equipment, and his defection could add to their struggles. And then just this past Monday, Iraqi forces captured ISIS's finance chief. You know, so in that sense, uh, those are good pieces of news, but otherwise, terrorism is far from being defeated in the Middle East. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger. We're talking with Dr. Charlie Dyer, just back from the Holy Land. Story number three, archaeologists announced that a giant meteor, which demolished an ancient city near the Dead Sea, was likely the basis for the Bible's story about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Charlie, how plausible is their theory? You know, that story made headlines, but it really doesn't hold up to careful scrutiny. And, and let me start by saying why. Uh, there really are ruins there on the northeast side of the Dead Sea. So there was a city there that was destroyed by fire, but stating that the ruins are those of Sodom or that the city was destroyed by a meteor, well, that's a lot more doubtful. Here's just some of the problems. Uh, they claim it was destroyed by a meteor, but there was no evidence of a crater, which you would expect if there was a meteor impact. Well, they said, well, maybe the meteor exploded in the air. But if that was the case, then why would an explosion that nearly vaporized one city not cause any damage to other nearby cities like Jericho, which is just 14 miles away, just to the west? The identification of this city with Sodom also doesn't hold up to biblical scrutiny. They dated the destruction of this city to 1650 BC, plus or minus 50 years. But the Bible says Sodom was destroyed during the time of Abraham. Abraham died about 1990 BC, so the destruction of this city took place over 300 years after Abraham died. And the site's located on the northeast side of the Dead Sea, but in Ezekiel, the prophet says Sodom was located to the south of Jerusalem, putting it at the southern end of the Dead Sea. So if you take the Bible at face value, the details of the destruction discovered by these archaeologists just doesn't match the time or the place of Sodom's destruction. So if it's not Sodom, what city is it? Well, we don't know. Hmm. Uh, there are many cities not named in the Bible, and uh, this just happens to be one of them. Now, I suspect the motive behind the headlines was more financial than historical. By connecting the site to Sodom, the archaeologists got a great deal of publicity, and they're likely hoping that the publicity will result in additional funds to support the dig. But I think we can feel pretty confident that they're not excavating Sodom. Story number four. A new Israeli nanotechnology claims to be able to use the body's own energy to generate power for a pacemaker. 
What are the details on this latest innovation out of Amazing Israel? Anyone who's received a pacemaker knows that eventually the battery wears out and needs to be replaced. Now, it's a relatively minor procedure, but it still comes with some risks. And that's where this latest news out of Israel could be welcome news indeed. An academic team from Tel Aviv University and the Weizmann Institute of Science, collaborating with several other institutions in Ireland, China, and Australia, have mimicked the structure of a collagen to produce a nanofilm that can create electricity from any motion in the body, even blood rushing through the uh, veins. Uh, the film will function like a tiny motor for very small devices by harvesting this energy and using it to power the device. The film will also allow companies to reduce the size of devices like pacemakers since they won't need to include the actual battery. Uh, the team has now published its research and hopefully it'll soon move from the laboratory to the development stage and result in the production of smaller, lighter pacemakers with no need to ever replace the battery. That'll be still another innovation from amazing Israel that will make a positive impact on people's lives. And that's a look at current events. Charlie, I just got to go back to uh, your recent trip feelings, uh, you know, as you process all that's going on. First of all, what about uh, traffic in Jerusalem itself? Do you feel it's a little lighter or is it still pretty snarly and gnarly? Uh, it's still pretty snarly and gnarly. Uh, there weren't <laughs> as many tour buses, but uh, otherwise traffic is about as bad as ever. You know, the number of cars on the highway continue to increase just from Israelis. So we did feel that. But it's amazing on sites and in hotels, uh, without the tourism, uh, it, it was nice. However, uh, the, after two years of not doing something, there's still a little bit of rust on the procedures at some places. And mm. uh, that was kind of humorous to watch. So you felt like the sites were open and not excessively crowded? Uh, for the most part. Uh, there were a few places like the uh, boat at Nafginasar on the Sea of Galilee, the, the ancient boat. The site wasn't even open yet, mm. uh, which was amazing. Yeah. And uh, traffic in the hotels, all pretty good, too. You have uh, pretty good access to those meals now with a little less uh, of a tourist uh, clogging things up. Yes, less clogging at the, uh, at the salad bar and the, uh, the dessert bar. <laughs> okay, those are some of the mechanics, folks. We're just letting you in behind the scenes. All of that to say there's room for you as you think about a trip upcoming to the Holy Land. And we hope that you'll find a pastor or a tour guide that'll help you make the Bible come alive as you travel to Israel. Well, coming up on The Land and the Book, Dysfunctional Families in the Old Testament, a fascinating conversation here on The Land and the Book. True or false? The Bible is filled with stories of picture-perfect families, ideal marriages, textbook parenting, obedient children, and siblings who always show love to one another. <laughs> Not even close to true. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. For anyone with a little or a lot of dysfunction in their family, today's conversation is for you. We'll dig into that after we dig into this, another creative idea for reaching out to your Jewish friends. Maybe you've got a heart to reach out to a Jewish friend, but what you lack is a little bit of basic education. How do we effectively speak to a Jewish person about our faith? Dan Strahl is with Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago. Where do we get this kind of training, Dan? Well, thanks for asking the question, John. I think it's so important for my Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ to learn how to witness effectively, share their faith effectively with Jewish people, because God loves to use Gentiles to bring his Jewish people to faith. Mm -hmm. 
And so all of the major Messianic Jewish ministries, outreach ministries, would be happy to come to your church and provide training for your people. Life and Messiah Ministries, Jews for Jesus, Chosen People Ministries, CJF Ministries, and lest I neglect the Olive Tree Congregation and other Messianic congregations would be delighted to come into the church and make an investment in God's people. Maybe it's something as simple as just asking for help. I mean, you know, we've got to ask for help, but knowing of these ministries is helpful as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing I want to encourage people to see is that it's not a matter of inviting the experts in to do what only the experts can do. It's a matter of inviting brothers and sisters in Christ in who can help you do what God has called you to do. Yeah, no such thing as a professional here doing the work on our behalf. We're called to do what only we can do as we build relationships with our Jewish friends, right? Absolutely. Dan Stroll is with Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago. Thanks for stopping by again. You're welcome. Thanks. You know, one of my uh, go-to conversational icebreakers is, my family put the fun in dysfunction. (laughs) And there may, quote marks around may, be some truth to that. Well, the thing is, dysfunctional families go back a long way. Uh, Would you believe all the way back to the uh, Old Testament? Let's dig further as we talk with a guy who's given this subject a lot of thought. Mike Novotny has been in full-time ministry since 2007, most recently at The Core in Appleton, Wisconsin. He also serves as the lead speaker for Time of Grace, where he shares Christ through television, print, and online platforms. He and his wife have two daughters, and when Mike isn't dating one of them, he loves running, reading, and playing soccer. Mike is also the co-author of Undeserved, How God's Grace Can Erase Your Failures. Hey, welcome to the land of the book, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me, John. Well, it seems to me dysfunction does begin with the very first family on earth. I mean, when Cain, the world's first baby boy, grows up, he gets envious of his brother Abel and ends up killing him. How could so much dysfunction arise to such horrific intensity so very quickly, Mike? <laughs> Sin? Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> you better say that. Yeah, it's, uh, the Bible is not sheepish about showing how fast things get off the rails, um, not just out in the world, but in the, the very family unit that God designed to be so beautiful and functional. So yeah, I actually appreciate that about the Bible. It doesn't make you wait until the prophet Ezekiel to say, okay, I can relate to this. <laughs> yeah, my, my family is just far from picture perfect. And here in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve and everyone yeah. else are people just like me who are really daily dependent on unconditional love. Well, down the generational road, we come to Isaac, Rebecca, and their two boys, Esau and Jacob. It's interesting, Mike, that the Bible drops this little juicy detail that Isaac preferred Esau, while Rebecca looked mm. out for Jacob. As a pastor, what's your experience with the fallout from parents playing favorite? Oh, man. Yeah, it's, it's pretty devastating. You know, there's this deep desire in every human's heart to be chosen— to be paid attention to, to be affirmed, and to be loved. And God really designed moms and dads to be that little glimpse of our Heavenly Father from the earliest age for our kids. So when, when a kid grows up and he's not paid attention to, he's overlooked because of his brother. She's ignored or even belittled because of her younger sister. Like that, that just has a deep wound that happens in the human heart. Hmm. And yeah, we see this in the the very story of the family that becomes part of Jesus' family tree. 
So boom, it, it's right there in the beginning. Yeah. Dysfunction in the Old Testament and in your life. That's our conversation today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager with our guest, Mike Novotny, who has written Undeserved, How God's Grace Can Erase Your Failures. Well, most everyone, of course, is familiar with the uh, biblical scene where Jacob cheats his brother Esau, getting him to trade his entire birthright for a bowl of soup. My question, where did this uh, insidious idea of Jacob's come from? And how could he possibly have thought it would work? Here, uh, have some soup and uh, hand it all over. <laughs> yeah. So when I was in, in grad school, John, there's actually a professor. His name was John, too. And I remember him in class one day saying, the older I get, the less I pray that God would protect me from my weaknesses and the more I pray that God would protect me from my strengths. Mm. And, you know, as a 23-year-old guy, I don't know that that struck me as, as that profound, but the older I get... I see that, and, and that's in Jacob's life, right? He's incredibly intelligent. He's smart. He's good with his words and on the spot in a way that his brother Esau isn't. And really, he leverages his strengths to get what he wants. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think about that. Some people are amazing with words. Some people are persuasive speakers. Some people are incredible leaders. Some people are, you know, just the, the general that everyone wants to follow. And I really see the wisdom of, of that grad school yeah. professor. God you've given me some really great gifts. Help me to use them as gifts and not to glorify myself or to get what I want. Hmm. Well, Jacob later pulls off a major deception with his visually impaired father. With Rebecca's help, his mom, he pretends to be Esau and then robs his brother of his rightful blessing. (laughs) Yeah. Just try to picture that for a second. I was speaking with someone yesterday about the book. Like, Can you imagine walking into the nursing home room of your aging father pretending to be your brother. Yeah, it's like, crazy. What, what would you do? What <laughs> Would you change your voice to try to sound like him? Or like, I'm like, sometimes I have to remind myself, this actually happened. Yeah. This is a real, this is a true story. This is nonfiction. And man, this for me is probably out of all the messiness and dysfunction of this family, this moment right now, that mom is even involved in it. She is privy. And mm-hmm. in fact, it's her plan to deceive her own husband. Yes. She's lying to her own husband, robbing her son. If there was like a reality show 4,000 years ago, I, I think this would be like the trailer that everyone <laughs> would want to watch. Thinking, no way. No way that happened. Yeah. But it actually did. You wonder what Dr. Phil would say to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What were you thinking? <laughs> yeah. Well, Joseph's brothers, we think about them selling him into slavery. Again, How does an entire brood of brothers get so twisted Mm. in their values? You could say, you know, maybe one or two of them are really twisted or wicked, but we're talking about the whole group of them. They sell their own flesh and blood. It just, it it doesn't make sense. Where does this dysfunction come from? Yeah, man, maybe this is a little personal, but I I actually didn't have the best last 24 hours as a husband. Um, When I left this morning to come do this interview, it was after a a pretty tough conversation with my wife. Mm-hmm. And your question, where does it come from? Man, just in all of our hearts, we kind of want to get what we want to get. Yes. And it might be small, you know, arguing or interrupting or not being empathetic like I was last night. Or it, it's really the same sin, just writ large, that if you're trying to get what you want, and it might be an interruption, or it might be a deception, or it might be to the case of Joseph and his brothers, was it Martin Luther who once said, the real root of sin is the human heart turned in on itself? Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. So I, I think you see that in this family and in, in my family, and that's really the thing that God needs to save us from yes. and uh, protect us from each day. Yeah, and in my family and in my heart as well. Mike Novotny has been in full-time ministry since 2007. As the lead speaker for Time of Grace, he shares Christ through television, print, and online platforms. Mike has written Undeserved, How God's Grace Can Erase Your Failures. Mike, you have to think that maybe God includes so many of these dastardly details of dysfunction to encourage us in our day that we're not the first or the worst. Your thoughts? Well, my first thought is, John, um, you have the gift of a preacher because dastardly details of dysfunction is the best alliteration (laughs) I've heard all morning. So well done for that. (laughs) Well, praise God for that. Yeah, man, I think God put all those stories in there so we would know that we are not the first bad sinners that he has been good to. Hmm. Um, if the Bible is just filled with the, you know, the courage of Paul or the obedience of John or the courage of David fighting Goliath, I think I would read it and kind of be inspired. And then after a long enough struggle, I'd be pretty crushed yes. by their goodness compared mm-hmm. to my badness. But if I'm reading a book, and I love the fact that the New Testament starts with, oh, yeah, and Jesus was related to him and to him. Oh, yeah, David the adulterer and to him and to Jacob the deceiver. Like, Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with sinners like that or a sinner like me. Mm-hmm. So I, I just find a, a story that I can relate to, and it's true, and it's proof that God doesn't kick messy people to the curb. He's there to forgive He's there to appear and encourage like he does to Jacob. And he's there to bless through the the, the dysfunction in ways that no one would expect or imagine. I love it. That is so encouraging. Uh, Why don't I put you on the spot here? What do you think is an Old Testament dysfunction that eludes many of us? Maybe a a dysfunction that we don't quite understand. Anything like that come to mind? Yeah, when I really meditated on Esau and Jacob, that story you mentioned with the soup before, Mm Mm-hmm. I really thought about self-control. I actually just got done with a counseling session a few minutes ago that was essentially about that, where we know what the right thing is to do most of the time. Mm -hmm. But just in the moment to be able to control ourselves, you know, Esau in that scene is like, well, whatever, I'm dying. It's, It's better for me to have this soup and give away everything. He gets deceived into thinking he needs this when he doesn't. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that's a common dysfunction I can relate to thinking I need to cross some line. Yes, yes. Um, I need to get my way. And even if I have to give up my values, what I cherish, my faith in that moment, I, I need this. And the mm. truth is, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, Esau, I think of that. Esau, you could have said no to your brother. You could have gone to mom or dad and said, I'm hungry. And I bet you would not have died. Yeah. <laughs> but just in the moment, he, he believed that deception. So that, I think that's, that's worth pondering. Like, what do I think in this moment that I need that the devil has tricked me into thinking, but I really don't. I need God, and he is here, and he will not leave me with regret the morning after. Hmm. For those of us who are honest enough to admit that we have created dysfunction at some level in our families or our neighborhoods or our jobs, what is God's word for us right now? (laughs) There's a little strip of land on the other side of the world from Chicago that is named after this dysfunctional mess, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel. So for people who are living with the memories of things they've done and can't take back, like Jacob did, think of how he tore his family apart for years. He, he couldn't go back and change that. And yet here, 
Remember when God appears in Genesis 32 and he wrestles with Jacob? He held on to this promise that God was not going to leave him. God was not going to bail on him. He would deliver him from that dysfunction. So I just love that fact that just when I think I've messed up too much, just when I think my sin is too messy, Mm -hmm. God appears in the most unlikely places and just like Jacob said, wow, God was in this place, and I didn't. How, how wonderful is the place where I am? Because God is appearing and helping and loving and forgiving a sinner just like me. For somebody who feels trapped by dysfunction, they just don't see any break in the cycle ahead, and they feel like they're the victims of that dysfunction. What's your advice for them? A, a first step, perhaps? Yeah, I would say read Romans chapter eight today, and then read it tomorrow. And after ninety days, you can stop reading it. Hmm. Romans 8 is just one of those chapters that it begins with, there's no condemnation for God's people. In the middle, it is insanely honest about the labor pains of what we go through in this life. I have two kids, so I've never experienced the pains, but I've witnessed them. (laughs) Uh So the the Bible's not minimizing the suffering that we go through. And yet, man, that chapter is so just bursting with hope and the Holy Spirit. And that moment is coming when when God gives us new life and restores everything that's broken. So, yeah, if there's no easy solution to the the dysfunction that you're in, reading my book isn't going to make it better. Studying the life of Jacob won't just instantly fix it. I would just soak your soul in the beautiful words of Romans chapter 8. What a great place to land this conversation. And what a helpful uh, dialogue this has been dysfunctional families in the Old Testament, dysfunction in yours, dysfunction in mine, but there's hope, right? Thanks to Mike Novotny, who's written Undeserved. I'm John Geiger, inviting you to hang around for our next segment, Questions and Answers, here on The Land and the Book. Thanks for sticking around for today's edition of The Land and the Book. I think you'll be glad you did. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer, whose Bible is open, whose, uh, whose mind is just spinning. You can almost see it in his face as he gets ready to answer your questions, which we welcome anytime at The Land and the Book at moody.edu. The Land and the Book at moody.edu. Charlie, here's our first question from Norm. He listens to us on WSEW in Sanford, Maine. His question relates to the tithe. It says, It seems to me that in the New Testament we are commanded to be generous, to give as we've been blessed and determined in our hearts, not out of compulsion. If so, why do some hold on to this perceived 10% so, as he puts it, tenaciously? (laughs) Well, yeah, I start with the observation that the command to tithe is never repeated in the New Testament. Instead, God provides a far more comprehensive set of principles for the stewardship of of our resources. But let me share for somebody who may not know some of those principles. Uh, We need to start by remembering everything ultimately comes from God and it belongs to God. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you didn't receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? Now, the second principle I always see is giving is to be regular, personal, systematic, and proportionate. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, the first day of every week, each one should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up. And of course, at that point, they were giving it to the needy saints in Jerusalem. Uh, But the third thing I notice is those who give of their material wealth will receive spiritual rewards. And in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. 
And finally, uh, the very next verse in 2 Corinthians 9, he says, giving should be done thoughtfully, generously, and cheerfully. You know, each person is to give what they've decided in their heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, having said all that, I don't know why some people still hold to a tithe today. Perhaps it's because that amount does occur in the Old Testament, or perhaps they view the word as synonymous with a gift or an offering rather than the actual amount. But what's presented for the church in the New Testament is, is actually more comprehensive. David emailed to say, I listen to the program every Saturday morning here in Riverside, California. I read in Acts 7:16 that Abraham had bought the land from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But in Genesis 23, 19 and 20, it says that the burial place was near Hebron and that the burial place was purchased from the sons of Heth. How can you harmonize these accounts and how does the geography of Israel help you to understand these accounts? Yeah, and I got to start by saying uh, the minute you mention geography for a lot of Americans, uh, their eyes roll back in their head. This happens to be one of those cases. Uh, Most people didn't even know there was a problem. But Acts 7 and Genesis 23, this is a case where geography doesn't immediately help since we know geographically where those places are. Shechem was about 50 miles north of Hebron. And at first glance, when you read Stephen's message in Acts 7, it appears that he's saying both Jacob and Joseph were buried in Shechem, which would, of course, conflict with Genesis 49, which says Jacob was buried in the cave of Machpelah near Hebron. Uh, But I believe this apparent difficulty can be resolved not by looking at geography, but by looking carefully at what Stephen actually said in Acts 7. He said, they were removed to Shechem, or their bodies were brought back to Shechem in some other translations. Now, in the immediate context, Stephen is referring back not to Jacob, but to our fathers in verse 15. Now, here's why that's important. When Jacob died, he was taken and buried in the cave of Machpelah shortly after his death. But the bodies of Joseph and presumably his other brothers as well remained in Egypt following their deaths. When Israel left Egypt at the time of the Exodus, they carried with them the bones of Joseph, Exodus 13 tells us, and it's also reasonable to assume they took along the bones of the other sons of Jacob, the patriarchal fathers of the 12 tribes. And we do know Joseph was buried in Shechem. So Stephen could simply be saying the fathers, referring to Joseph and his brothers, who were the fathers of the different tribes, were all buried together at Shechem. Stephen then adds one additional detail that's not recorded in Genesis, and that's that the land that these fathers were buried had originally been purchased by Abraham, who did actually arrive in the land near Shechem in Genesis 12. So uh, sorry to ramble and and, uh, make a complex thing even more complex, perhaps, but I believe Stephen's account can be harmonized with the events in the Old Testament if we assume that the fathers buried in Shechem uh, that Stephen's talking about refers to Joseph and his brothers, not Jacob. Hope that's helpful, David. And here's another geography question, Charlie, from Robin. She says, Reuben and Gad asked Moses to apportion them their land on the east side of the Jordan. Why did Moses then also include the half-tribe of Manasseh in Numbers 32? Yeah, we're not told in the text why the half-tribe of Manasseh was apportioned uh, that land on the east side of the Jordan River. So my answer needs to be a little bit tentative, but in the account of the land being given to them, it occurs right after Reuben and Gad asked for their land. So I suspect the tribe of Manasseh watched that unfold and then jumped in to ask for the remaining land already conquered by Israel. Uh, You know, Reuben and Gad got the territory controlled by Sihon, king of the Amorites. Manasseh then received the land in the region of Gilead that had been controlled by Og. But specifically, why would Manasseh request that land, which was in addition to land that they received inside the promised land? 
Uh, one possibility is they felt the need for additional land because their tribe apparently experienced the greatest increase in numbers during the 40 years in the wilderness. And comparing the number of fighting men in the first census, Numbers 1, with the number in the census taken 38 years later in Numbers 26, the tribe of Manasseh increased by nearly 64%. Five of the tribes still were larger numerically, but with a much smaller percentage increase. So for whatever reason, it seems that Manasseh might have felt the need for more space because its population was growing fastest among all the other tribes. You're listening to The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. We're working our way through a list of questions. Yours. And geography is a big theme today. Like uh, Buffy here, who says, I'm wondering how many miles are between Rama and Shiloh? Is it possible that Hannah and maybe Elkanah, visited Samuel there more than once a year. Yeah, well, I'll start this way. As the crow flies, the distance between Rama and Shiloh is about 15 miles. Uh, but the distance on foot, uh, probably more like 20 miles, depending on exactly where Hannah actually lived. But even that isn't the full story. The area between Rama and Shiloh, by the way, Shiloh's where the tabernacle was. Rama is where Hannah lived and where Samuel had been born. Well, the area between those two was remote and rugged. Now, two details from one of the more gruesome stories in, in the book of Judges helps put the geography in context. Uh, the first is found in Judges 19, verse 1. The, the Levite in the story lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim. So parts of the area of Ephraim, which is where Shiloh was, were remote and isolated. You may remember the story of the uh, in Judges 12 about the Ephraimites who were killed because they weren't able to properly pronounce Shibboleth. Well, that illustrates that the isolated regions uh, were, were so isolated, people began to develop their own dialect. Well, we'd probably call them today the hillbillies. But the second detail in Judges 19 to 21 occurs in chapter 21. Uh, in describing an annual festival in Shiloh, the writer adds an unusual geographical detail. He actually stops to explain exactly where Shiloh was located. The people had to be told Shiloh was to the north of Bethel and east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem and to the south of Labona. Now, that's an amazingly accurate description of where Shiloh was, and it's a reminder that Shiloh was off the main highway and off the beaten path. It suggests to me the tabernacle had been deliberately set up in a remote area that wasn't easily accessible to the point where people had to be reminded how to get there. Hmm. Now, could Hannah have ventured out to Shiloh more than once a year? Well, yeah, it's possible, but it would have been a hazardous journey for a woman traveling alone. And it would have taken the better part of a day to walk there and another day to walk home. So as a result, I, I do take 1 Samuel 2 as a, a statement on the number of times Hannah and her husband made that journey. She went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. So they journeyed there once a year. Boy, who knew all that was in the biblical account of Hannah and her husband visiting their son, Samuel. Here's one from Sharon. I have a question about a passage that I'm teaching. David's son by Bathsheba was put to death. Hosea 9, verse 12 and verse 16 point out that Israel's children would be put to death as part of God's judgment. Are these related? Love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, well, let me start with the Hosea passage. Uh, Hosea prophesied 150 years after the time of David, and he was talking about the northern kingdom of Israel. And what he was really saying is that the curses of the covenant threatened by God in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 were going to be poured out on Israel because of its sin and rebellion. 
in Hosea 9, he says God's uh, glory will fly away, and he relates it to no birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Uh, in fact, in chapter 9, verses 12 and 13, he says even those children who've been born will be put to death by the slayer. And in verse 17, Israel would be wanderers among the nations. So uh, he's really saying all the curses of the covenant that God had threatened were going to happen when the Assyrians came and destroyed the nation of Israel. Now, in David's case, the death of the child was a specific judgment on David because of his sin with Bathsheba. God delivered that judgment through Nathan the prophet, but God said the sword would never depart from his house. Uh, David had gotten away with sin, or he thought he had. And that's why God continues on and says the child that's born has to die. The death of the child was a, a sad but direct message to David and others that God isn't mocked, and he takes sin very seriously. And that's a look at our questions here on The Land and the Book. Up next is Charlie's Devotion. You don't want to miss it. Stick around for more right here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. This is The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer, Middle East expert and author. I'm John Geiger, welcoming you back to our final segment, Tolerance. There's a place for it. There's also a place for intolerance. How to know the difference? Well, that's the subject of Charlie's devotional coming up. But first, we're going to hand the microphone over to somebody who's been to Israel, has been affected deeply by that experience. Let's listen to this Holy Land experience. Hi, this is Roy Patterson. Never will forget when I went to the Holy Land. We were at a banquet near the Sea of Galilee, and I saw a number of fish. It was just amazing to me. And so I was feeding the fish, and it started with two or three. And before I knew it, there was about 15, 20, maybe even 30 fish gathered in that area. I thought of the passage where Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. That came alive to me as we were on a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and I thought, this is where Jesus walked on the water. I was astounded. Uh, the place in Luke 4 where Jesus is uh, letting folks know, hey, this day is the scripture fulfilled. Isaiah 61 is fulfilled in your ears. And he sits down. We went to that spot and saw a seat just like that particular seat. Uh, seeing the, the, the Mount of Olives, was just amazing. I could go on and on on how that trip affected me, how it enhanced my Bible reading. I'm so grateful that I went to Israel. Well, if there's a buzzword that characterizes us, it's got to be tolerance. It continues as it has for many years, Charlie, but there's a place where tolerance has no place. Uh, that's correct, and we're going to see that in Jesus's letter to the church at Thyatira. In his book, The Innocents Abroad, Mark Twain relates his humorous reaction to visiting the supposed tomb of Adam in Jerusalem. The tomb of Adam, how touching it was, here in a land of strangers, far from home and friends and all who cared for me, thus to discover the grave of a blood relation. True, a distant one, but still a relation. That silly story comes to mind today as our bus arrives at Ahisar, Turkey, the location of the ancient city of Thyatira. You see, the most famous inhabitant of this town, from a biblical perspective, was a woman named Lydia. And though she had moved to Philippi by the time we met her in Acts 16, Dr. Luke lets us know she was from the city of Thyatira. But why does Mark Twain's quote come to mind? 
Well, as I share with groups, usually to a chorus of groans, Lydia was a businesswoman who dealt in purple cloth from Thyatira. And of course, that would classify her as a dyer. Lydia Dyer. So today's visit takes us to the hometown of a relative. True, a distant one, but still a relation, as Mark Twain would say. As we pull into town, don't expect to see any impressive ruins. Ancient Thyatira is buried under the ruins of the modern town. A small section of ruins in a downtown park is about all that's visible from ancient Thyatira. But while the ruins are unimpressive, the city itself was quite important. It sat at a crossroads of sorts that worked its way through the interior of Asia Minor. From Thyatira, one could travel northwest to Pergamum, southwest to Ephesus, southeast to Sardis, or northeast toward Nicaea and modern-day Istanbul. This made it a commercial hub. Thyatira was famous for manufacturing purple dye as well as the production of other goods. Inscriptions have been discovered that relate to the many different trade guilds in the city. In fact, the names of more trade guilds have been found in Thyatira than in any other city in Asia Minor. These trade guilds function something like unions do today. So in that sense, Thyatira was a union town. If you wanted to work in Thyatira, you needed to belong to the appropriate guild. We're not sure who started the church in Thyatira. Could the Apostle Paul have visited it during his time in Asia? Perhaps. Could Lydia have returned from Philippi to help begin the work in her hometown? That's also possible. But however it started, by the end of the first century, it was a church that also stood at a crossroads. And that's why Jesus wrote a letter, especially to this group of followers. The pressures faced by the church in Thyatira were different than those faced by the previous churches, and they seemed to revolve around the trade guilds. The trade guilds held a monopoly over key businesses. If you wanted to be in that business, you had to belong to the guild. But these guilds were more than just labor unions as we understand that term. They also served to bind their members together socially and religiously. Guild rituals often involved idolatry, and their social gatherings were little more than drunken orgies. Picture a modern group of conventioneers partying in Las Vegas, and you have some picture of what a gathering of guild members was like. So how could a Christian survive in a city like Thyatira? How could he or she earn a living? if it required membership in a guild that embraced idolatry and immorality. That was the issue that faced believers in Thyatira until a woman who claimed to be a prophetess stood up to deliver what she claimed to be God's answer. God said it's okay for you to attend the guild gatherings even if it means eating meat sacrificed to idols or participating in some activities that seem immoral. After all, God knows you need to provide for your families. And it was at this point that Jesus wrote his letter to the church. He began by commending the believers for their faithfulness. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. He was pleased with many of the things going on in this church. Yet there was one issue that troubled Jesus, and it centered on the church's attitude toward this woman who claimed to be a prophetess. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, 
who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Jesus minces no words on what he thought of this woman. Her name was almost certainly not Jezebel. That would be similar to naming a boy today Hitler or Stalin. But by calling her Jezebel, Jesus cuts to the heart of the issue. She was trying to seduce God's followers into accepting idolatry and immorality, just like the Jezebel of old. At this point, you might feel like there's a bit of a disconnect. Jesus commended most of those in the church and called them faithful. His judgment seems to single out this evil woman and her small band of followers. So what is it that Jesus has against this church as a whole? Look carefully at what he said. I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. The problem Jesus had with the church wasn't that they were following this woman's advice. It was that they had allowed her to continue rather than dealing with her sin. Jesus rebuked the church for its tolerance toward sin. We live in a world that believes intolerance is always sin and that inclusivity, love, and acceptance are always virtues. And certainly when it comes to racial prejudice and bigotry, that's true. But God has also established clear norms for right and wrong, clear standards that define what we're to do and what we're to avoid. And he expects us to be intolerant of sin in our own lives and among those who claim to be his followers. In our let's just accept everyone as they are world, Jesus' words are jarring, almost out of place, but they're filled with truth we ignore to our own peril. It's no accident that Jesus focused on his ability to see behind actions and judge motives. He began this letter by picturing his eyes like a flame of fire, piercing into the dark recesses of the heart. And he ends by describing himself as the one who searches the minds and hearts. The church in Thyatira, and at times the church today, can all too easily overlook sin through a misplaced focus on tolerance. But God's standards remain unchanged. He's holy, and he expects us to settle for nothing less in our lives. Jesus' letter to the church in Thyatira is a reminder that the church needs to become a little less tolerant when it comes to sin. Thanks, Charlie. A look at Revelation chapter 2 there on today's edition of The Land and the Book. And that's about all the time we have now, but we want to quickly remind you of our website, thelandandthebook.org where you can go to hear today's or any broadcast again. We've got uh, a podcast you can download there, bios available on all of our guests, lots of great links there, including to Charlie's blog and our Facebook page at thelandandthebook.org. Love to get your email. Share with us how the program is making a difference in your life. Our email address is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That'll do it for today. Thanks for listening to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.